welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Good morning, friends. Good morning. You're a chatty little buncher this morning. I love it. Chatty Kathy's all around here. Chatty Kathy. Uh, so I'm Micah, again. Uh, sorry, inter- sorry to interrupt. I'm rearranging here. I've got a whiteboard this morning, guys. This is going to be epic, epic, as it were. Um, so yeah, we're starting a new series today. Uh, before we do that, though, I just want you to know that the leadership teams at Awaken know how to have a good time. Uh, this is a picture last night. This is the nook at, uh, ran, uh, at, uh, over by, uh, in St. Paul. So this is your advisory team over on the right uh, and the core team on the left. And uh, lanes five and six uh, versus lanes six, seven and eight. And I'll just, just so you know, uh, the pastoral advisory team mopped the floor with the core team last night. I'm just going to say that on the record out loud because that's exactly, all for the Lord's glory, that's right, all for the Lord's glory. So Laura and I treated uh, that fun, fun group of people to a party last night and it was, it was a good party. So that doesn't have anything to do with anything, but I think it's important. The things that, the things, hey, listen, the things that you celebrate matter, and they define culture. So we, uh, we have a good time here at Awaken. We, we take Jesus very seriously, but not ourselves. So that's good. Um, okay, uh, can you turn me down just a hair uh, uh, on, on the, over, there we go. Because um, I'm going to get, I get, I get pretty excited about things, and I'm really excited about this series. Uh, we spent a lot of time this last season in the Old Testament, in Moses, uh, the story of the Exodus. And this year, we're beginning a new, we're going to the opposite end of the, of the Bible, the opposite end of the spectrum, and we're going to be studying the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews, actually, it, if, if you didn't know this, there's a lot of controversy uh, surrounding the book of Hebrews. Uh, who wrote it, when it was written, nobody has, people have all kinds of ideas, but nobody's set on it. Uh, whether or not it should be in the Bible, actually, it was a very debated book in the canon process. What, what we got as 66 books was a process uh, called the canon, canonization of the Bible, and there were many who argued that it shouldn't be in the Bible. Martin Luther, our good friend Martin, uh, he actually argued that James, Jude, Hebrews, and Revelation all out. Did you know that? Martin Luther wanted four books of the Bible, like, out. He was crazy in some ways. I'm glad, I'm glad that he didn't get his way because Hebrews is a great, great book. Uh, I don't quote John Calvin very often, but I am going to do that today. And here's what he says about Hebrews. He says, There is indeed no book in the Holy Scriptures which speaks so clearly of the priesthood of Christ, which so highly exalts the virtue and dignity of that only true sacrifice which he offered by his death, which so abundantly deals with the use of ceremonies as well as their abrogation. Try to use that word in a sentence this week. And in a word, so fully explains that Christ is the end of the law, John Calvin says. So, big book, really important book. Uh, Heavy lifting in terms of like theological ideas uh, that, that connect to what does it mean to be a Christian? So uh, when the early church was forming, so Jesus dies in 33 or so, and he's resurrected and he ascends, and then this new group of people, the early church, begins to meet and gather and try to carry on this good news, this gospel, there were things that they debated heavily and highly uh, early on. Some of them, uh, who is Jesus? 
how do you make sense of this man who was fully human and fully divine? It's a metaphysical question, but it's a theological question as well. How is this person one person, but three parts of one God? I mean, those are mind-blowing and kind of mind-screwing ideas that the early church had to wrestle through. Some of the earliest councils of the church of Jesus were wrestling through those issues. The Council of Nicaea, which was Constantine uh, sort of gathering these folks, that was the debated topic, who is Jesus? And if you read the Nicene Creed, if you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, the major issue in that creed, as, as you read through it, is the, the divinity and the humanity of this Jesus. So they wrestled with this. They wrestled with questions like uh, the role of Israel and the law and the sacrificial system, right? We have the Old Testament. That's all they knew was go to the temple, sacrifice, priests, that whole deal. And so now in Acts 15, you have these new Gentiles who are coming into this faith of, of, uh, in Jesus, and they're debating do they have to sacrifice at temple? Do they have to eat kosher? Should they be circumcised? And of course, all the Gentiles were like, yes, sign me up for that. <clears throat> Adult circumcision, yikes. So th- this is one of the things they debated. Like, how does Israel and the law and the Old Testament, how do we work that out? They, they had questions about the nature of the cross and the atoning work of Jesus, and what does that really mean? These are all issues that the book of Hebrews deals with in depth. So it is a very rich and dense and important book. Uh, I'm excited about it because we've spent so much time with Moses and the Old Testament. This sort of puts a smack dab in the middle of Jesus in the season of Epiphany. The church calendar begins in Advent, and the next season, which we are in now, is Epiphany, the light of God, which has come into the world. So we'll be spending a lot of time talking about Jesus. So uh, here's some of the background before we jump into this book, and we're going to just study four verses this morning. Um, Hebrews isn't, it's sort of in a category unto itself, in terms of like, uh, is it a letter? Is it an epistle? Is it apocalyptic? It begins like a sermon, it ends like a letter, and it has some weird imagery in the midst of it. So it's sort of a cross of all three. Uh, most scholars would say it's a letter written by somebody. Nobody knows who. Most people argue that it's Paul. Uh, there's a lot of people who say it can't be Paul. There's no way it's Paul. The Greek in this book is hands down the best language in the entire Bible. It's phenomenal. So it couldn't have been Paul, people argue. Because uh, we, have, we, have, we have 13 other books attributed to him, and we know who he is. We know how he writes. And this book stands alone in terms of its, its eloquence. So um, the timeline and the dating is one of the things that's debated. Um, we're going whiteboard style for this series, guys. Uh, if you, just so you have an idea as to where this thing lands, 100 AD, most of the books of the Bible, uh, New Testament, had been written, zero being Jesus' birth. 33 is Jesus' death, according to most historians. One very important event that happens in uh, where the Romans come in and they destroy the temple in Jerusalem happens in the year 70 AD. Well done, you guys. I'm proud of you. 70 AD. The book of Hebrews makes no mention at all of the Roman Empire coming into Jerusalem and destroying the temple. You would think that a book and an author who is very concerned about the sacrificial system, the law, temple, who's the high priest, Melchizedek, Melchizedek as we call him, uh, no mention of, of the temple being destroyed. So a lot of people argue by deference then that the book was written sometime before 70 AD. Either way, 
it's sometime in here. It really doesn't matter for our purposes. Uh, if, you, if you're interested in that, by all means, knock yourself out. Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 to 4. I'm going to ask you to stand, and we will read God's word, and then we will jump in. Are you excited or what? I am. Here we go. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he spoke to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, is the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. God, as we open up this letter, this beautiful note written to a group of people long ago, uh, I pray that the author's voice, that their intentions, their hopes, their dreams, their desires for their, their audience would find its home here. That these things that matter so much to this person that he believed mattered so much to the community of Jesus followers would matter to us. So make yourself known. Let us see you for who you are and nothing else. And all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. So last summer, I had some friends, some covenant church planters who came to Awaken. I was a part of a church planting uh, training. And one of my friends, his name is Michael Carrion. Mike is from the Bronx. He is a self-proclaimed Latino, which means his mother is uh, Latino and his father is African-American. He's a Latino. That's what he says. Like, hi, Mike. I'm a Latino. I'm like, oh, all right, cool. Nice to meet you. Uh, So Mike is a large presence. He's a very charismatic person. And uh, while I was preaching, he's sitting right up here. Some of you may have been here for this, but he's sitting right up here. And I'm just, I'm going for it. You know, I'm all in. I'm like, like I do. And he yells from the top, drop it like it's hot, Micah. And Awaken, the whole community is kind of like not sure what to do, you know, with this like, yeah, amen, preach, brother. You know, all these white people who come from Baptist backgrounds, you know, we're just sort of like, thanks for that addition. Drop it like it's hot. Dropping it like it's hot, Mike. So I, I, I think that the opening of Hebrews the author is just like, drop it like it's hot. If you've seen Napoleon Dynamite, Rex Quando, break the wrist, walk away. Break the wrist, walk away. I mean, this person goes all in right out of the gate. He holds nothing back. He takes all, the, all that he wants to say and just sort of says, boom, how you like me now? And it is, uh, in, in, our, in our language, you know, it's broken up by sentences and, and, and verses and whatever, but this is all one idea, one thought, and it is just packed with important things. So what I want to do this morning is, is break it apart into two sections, because I think there are, there are kind of two ideas here, and then I want to land on two, um, so what? Like for us, 2015, wow, 2015. What does this mean, and what is it that we need to hear as people trying to follow this Jesus? So that's what I want to do. Uh, The first section uh, comes in verses 1 and 2, and we're going to need, I'm going to need a drawer here a little bit. Uh, What we're talking about in verses 1 and 2 is revelation. So the author is really looking at what 
or how has God revealed God's self throughout history? And he sort of breaks it up into four categories. It's uh, the era, like when, the recipients, who, um, the ways or the, uh, the agents that that revelation has come through, and the way by which that revelation has come. And so the author says in verses 1 and 2, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. So in the past God has spoke through our ancestors, through the prophets in lots of different ways, right? So the revelation, we'll just call it ways, various ways, there we go. The revelation of God, the ways that God has made God's self known has come in the past to our forefathers, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, through the prophets, and that could have come through a prophetic vision or a, a word from the Lord or something that was written down or a dream, various ways. And it's sort of this smattering of things. And then he says essentially that these things are contrasted to what has happened in Jesus, which is a singular moment and sort of point in time where the revelation of God has now come, not in the past, but he says in the age to come, which might be confusing. Let me see if we can break it down. The Jews believed that time was broken up into two periods, the age that they lived in and what they called the age to come. So when the guy comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit, remember what the text says? eternal life. What the question he's really actually asking, what must I do to inherit the age to come? And the age to come would begin when the Messiah returned and God's kingdom began. So what the author of Hebrews says is, it did, this new revelation begins the age to come. It's now. And, and it's to us, not to our forefathers, but to you and to me. And not in a various number of ways through the prophets, but through Jesus in one way. So this, the, the whole first section, verses 1 and 2, is all about how has God made God's, God's self known in the past, to our forefathers, through the prophets, in lots of different ways, right? Then he says, now in Jesus, it has begun the age to come, or the kingdom of God, or the coming, it's been inaugurated, as it were, and it's come to us in one particular fashion, in a very real particular, identifiable, and that is Jesus. And it is this one sort of moment. Um, do you guys remember, this illustration may be a little gender uh, exclusive, I recognize, because I don't know many little girls who did this, but maybe you were one of those people, and so I'll, I'll let you in on this. When you got a magnifying glass when you were a child, yeah, you know where this is headed, right? So what do you do? You take the magnifying glass on a bright sunny day and you go outside and you gather all of the power of the sun in this one little glass thing that focuses the attention and power and beams of the sun so that you can burn ants. Yes, you know this exactly. So you can, you can kill small animals that are defenseless. Well done, way to go. Or you light things on fire, right? Okay, so this is what you do. The author of Hebrews is essentially doing the same thing theologically. He's taking all of the ways that God has revealed God's self and saying it has all come down to this moment, this point, this focus, and this idea. And that idea is no longer an idea, but a person. And his name is Jesus. 
I mean, this is huge. This is big. This is as important as it gets in the New Testament. Then he says, so if that's section one, then he says, let's talk about the nature and the works and the uh, um, status of this event and this person. So now that I've focused your attention, now that you've, you've got the idea that we're talking about this thing that happened here definitively, practically in Jesus, let's talk about the nature of that thing, let's talk about the works of that thing or what it accomplishes, and then the status of this Jesus. So that's verses 3 and 4 where he says that the nature of Jesus, the Son, the revelation of God, is that he is the radiance of God's glory. So when the Bible talks about God's glory, it's often in the language of light. And you have this sort of luminous presence of God, that when God shows up or God is present, uh, the Shekinah glory is the, the technical theological term, that it is, it is the brightest light you can ever imagine. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, just like you can't separate a sunbeam from the sun, like you can't differentiate between those two things, when you see Jesus, you see the radiance of God's glory. Jesus is God's glory enfleshed. So when he shows up on the scene, it is the light of God come into the world. That's why it's called epiphany. So he's the radiance of God's glory, and then he's the exact representation of God's presence. Now this one is a mind blower. If, if, if we miss this, oh man, this is big, game changer. So in the Roman Empire, this was very common. If there was an emperor who wanted to sort of disseminate his power and presence throughout the empire, there's no Twitter, there's no face page, there's no tweet book, there's nothing, right? So how does one do this? How, does, how do you get it out on MySpace and face page, right? Uh, you, you send it out through the money because everybody in the empire has the money. So they would imprint the face of the emperor on the coin, right? It's George Washington. We have this. Here's how it would work. Artists would come together and they would make sketches of the, of the emperor and they would refine that process until they got what they determined to be the exact representation of the emperor. The word that the writer of Hebrews uses here for the exact representation is the word character. And it's not anything to do with like the quality of a person, but rather a language, like the, the, the characters in, a, in an alphabet. And so what they would do was refine that process until they got what they called the exact representation of the emperor, and then they would carve that image into hard metal, which would then stamp soft metal, and that would go out into the empire. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, when Jesus shows up, he is the exact representation of, all of the ways that God has revealed God's self to the world has been funneled down to this primary, final, full representation of who God is. And that image is then seen in Jesus. This is big. I'm going to come back to that in a second. So the nature of Jesus is he's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation. He's the icon of God. The work of Jesus, the work of this revelation, the author says he's the one who's sustaining all things. Remember John chapter 1 opens 
in the beginning, or that's Genesis, but John says the word was God, the word was with God, and all things were made through him, right? Which is a mirror of Genesis 1. Beautiful, beautiful. If you read Genesis and then John, he's playing off of it. John opens that Jesus, the word, the logos, is that all things were made through him. So the writer of Hebrews is not only connecting Jesus to the present, but to the past. He's the creator of all things, and he's also the one who's sustaining all things. He is the error, not E-R-R-O-R, but E-H-E-I-R. He's the heir, apparent, he's the heir of all of creation. Remember in Israel, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were given an allotment of land, each tribe. And those tribes, the, the son, the eldest born son of the family, would inherit certain parts of land, parcels of land. They, they were the heir of the father of the land. Jesus is not the heir of Israel. Rather, he is the heir of all creation. What, what, the, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is the world's, not only creator, sustainer, and heir, but he is the world's true Lord which is to say, kurios in Greek, Lord, means the authority over it all. He's the one who has the power and the authority to sustain and carry out and, and care for all of creation, which is a, unbelievable to say in the middle of first century Rome because Rome says, the gospel of Rome, the, the good news of Rome is, as long as you bow a knee to Caesar, as long as you say Caesar is Lord, that's exactly what they were told to say. Literally, it's on coins. Caesar is curios, Lord. Then the peace and the prosperity and the power of Rome is yours. Just bow a knee. Just drink the Kool-Aid. Caesar is Lord. Say it. And if you don't, you die by hanging you on a cross. So for the writer of Hebrews, for Paul, over and over and over again to say, Jesus is curious. He's the heir of the world. He's the, the world's true Lord, the Messiah of Israel, vindicated in resurrection. It's to say something very, very political and very, very important. And for those who said Jesus is Lord, often they found themselves killed. So the work of the Son is not only that he sustains all things, it says he purifies from sin. This is a book that talks about the temple. When you're in, if you're an Israelite and you want to be pure of sin or purified from sin, there were all kinds of purification laws that you had to go through and rituals you had to do, hand washings and this, that, the other thing, sacrifices you had to make. You go to the temple, you offer a certain sacrifice for certain sins, and you were purified of those sins. What he's saying is that all of that is obsolete. It it need not happen anymore because the final work of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, not only cleanses you but purifies you of sin so it is huge what he's saying the nature of the son the work of the son and then the status of the son because of all that he sits where at the right hand of god which we know it's not you don't need a rocket scientist you know you don't need to be a rocket scientist to know to be at the right hand of somebody is to be in a position of power and of authority and of importance something that's bestowed on you by the king Jesus sits at the right hand, and his name is the name above all names, above the angels, above all others. Curios, Lord. So now, as we wrap this up, what does this mean? So what? Like, we're in the deep end of the pool theologically here, guys. This is like, like really, really intense stuff. What does it actually mean, or what's important for us to know? I would say, number one, none but Jesus. 
none but Jesus. The New Testament, the writer of Hebrews, makes a bold and offensive claim that none but Jesus, that the the reconciliation of all things, the redemption of all things, the restoration of all things, the forgiveness of sin and eternal life with God now and forever comes in and through the particular revelation of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah of Israel, the world's true Lord. That's what he's saying. So what you believe about Jesus matters. In essence, all roads do not lead to God. That's what, that's what he's saying. Now, I recognize that this message in our culture where tolerance and diversity and everybody's okay and everybody can be right at the same time, doesn't, it's not very popular for someone to say that. And I, know, and I know that often this message of none but Jesus comes with not only just sort of passive-aggressive, but aggressive aggression, like it's, it's not met with fanfare. I recognize that, and my hope and my prayer is that I, as a pastor and as a teacher, and we as a community, add no more offense to an already offensive claim. This is our problem half the time, friends. We add unnecessary offense to an already offensive gospel. Die to yourself, live for someone else, and trust that this Revelation, this moment, this person, this action is actually God's move to restore and redeem all things. Not something else. It's an already offensive gospel, and it makes it's it's a stake in the ground. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying, and that's what the that's what the New Testament writers are trying to say. That they believed that this moment, this revelation of Jesus was definitive and absolutely the pinnacle of God's movement and offering of God's self to the world and to you and I. So I would say to you this morning, Awaken is a safe place for us to ask questions. It's a safe place for us to wrestle. You may come here this morning and you may say, yes, Micah, preach it. Drop it like it's hot. You may be here this morning and you may be like, I'm not really sure. Like, really? Just Jesus? Like, not? Okay. Welcome. We're glad you're, you may, you may be here and you may say, I think you're full of crap. And I think you're pretty arrogant to say that. That's fine. That's okay. You're welcome here. We like, let's wrestle this thing to the, let's do this, right? This is the work of God's, this is theology. This is interpreting what the scriptures say and what it means. So I think that, that the author of Hebrews was, could have been a covenanter. (laughs) Because the covenant, for as long as we've been in, in, in existence, has said, let's keep the main thing the main thing, and let's keep what's central, central. So we at Awaken will be tenacious about keeping Jesus at the center. We want to be a safe place for people to journey with Jesus, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus at the center. That's what defines this community. And I make no apologies for that. Every community is defined by something. It has a center by the very nature of it being a community. That doesn't mean it's exclusionary because it's defined by something. This community, this gospel, this book, the church of Jesus is defined by this moment. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. None but Jesus. 
Now, how we work all that out, okay, let's do that. Let's, figure, let's have those conversations. But that's what's being said. And I would be unfaithful to the text if I didn't say it as clearly as he does. I think secondly, I would say it this way, a Jesus-looking God. A Jesus-looking God. I think for a lot of us, our picture, our image of God looks nothing like Jesus. And maybe that's because we inherited it from someone. Maybe that's because the community that represented God didn't do a very good job of representing God. But for whatever reason, the author of Hebrews says that if you want to know what God is like, you need to look no further than Jesus. What does Jesus say when the disciples come to him? God, Jesus, we want to see the Father. We want to see what God looks like. And Jesus is like, bam, how you like me now? That's my version of it. He says, you, don't, you just need to look at me. So what is God like? God is like a self-sacrificial lover of people who hangs on a cross for his enemies. That's what God is like. What's God like? God is like the one who says, where are all the people who had stones? Where are they? Oh, they're gone. Yeah, you're right, they're gone. And I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more, which isn't a free pass to do anything you want, but a freedom to be human as you were created to be human as God made you to be human. I don't condemn you either. That's what God looks like. Resurrection is what God looks like. Where dead things come alive. Where darkness turns into light. This is what God looks like. If the author of Hebrews says anything, he says, if you want to know what God is, what God is like, what God sounds like, what God looks like, what God feels like, you only need to see Jesus. So, that's probably enough to think about for a couple of weeks. I'm going to be done for today. And here's how I want to be done. Whatever beliefs you have about God, whatever images you see when you close your eyes and the word God is uttered, whatever does not look like Jesus, sound like Jesus, you're free to let go. You're free to walk away from it. You're free for it not to have power in your life. You're free for it to stop haunting you and killing you. You're free. I'm going to ask John Mark and the band to come, and we're going to sing one song as we close. As we move towards that, I think that's my phone that's ringing. No, maybe not. As we do that, I want to invite you to uh, just a few moments of reflection. In the church, they've called this cataphatic prayer, where we engage our, our imagination, like our mind. What you see, what you imagine in your mind, to the degree that you can see it and picture it, is the degree to which it can change you and transform you. So if you have a picture or an image of God that is anything less than beautiful or, or less beautiful or less loving and less uh, than Jesus, then that picture and that image changes you and transforms you for good or for ill. And so I want to invite you to a time of just offering whatever images, whatever pictures, whatever experiences you've had that have shaped your view of God. 
I want to invite you maybe just in the next few moments, if you would, close your eyes. If you're comfortable with it, hold your hands in front of you. And however you need to phrase it or say it, what I want you to do is offer whatever images, pictures, beliefs, emotions that you have about God. I want you to offer them to the work of God's Spirit in your life. It says that in Scripture, it says that the Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth. And so we need not be afraid. And when we, when we offer, when we submit our lives to the work of God's Spirit, He leads us to truth. So whatever images, whatever pictures you have, I want you to offer them to God and ask for you to have, for God to give you Jesus. What Jesus sounds like, what Jesus looks like, what Jesus feels like, what Jesus acts like, whatever Jesus would say to whatever situation you find yourself in, whatever you're wrestling through. So maybe there's a great transition. Maybe there's a great a, a transaction that happens this morning. So just in the next few moments, go ahead and do that. Whatever images or pictures you have, hold them, offer them to God, and ask for in return the face of Jesus, the exact representation that you might know, be reintroduced to God in Jesus. God, I've, I feel like this is so important. And I just, I sense uh, this, that this is an important moment. And so God, I pray that your spirit would come, that we would sense your presence in very real ways right here in this room this morning. God, that for those that have pictures of you, images of you that are changing them, transforming them away from who you are, what you were about, Jesus. God, would you just break through those walls? Would you tear down those things? Would you get rid of and give us fresh, beautiful, vibrant pictures that make us come alive, that draw us closer to you, that bring more and more and more of who you created us to be out. God, that we might be changed from one degree of glory to another because we're in the presence of the sun, the radiance of your glory, the exact representation of who you are, God. And then may that image that changes us be the one that the world sees, that our parents see, that our co-workers see. 
God, would, would you do that for us this morning? Wherever, we, wherever you find us, I pray. I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to sing this last song. And I want to invite you to do something that we can't do separately, which is to unite our voices in song, declaring something that we believe to be true, that Jesus was on Friday a thief and on Sunday the king, the Lord of all lords. So let's sing this together. Friends, I... Sometimes I feel like I'm the luckiest guy around, that I get to be, to do this for my work. I love being your pastor, and I love being able to give each week something that I have anchored my life on, and I have seen dead things come to life, where there is once only darkness, light has come. I've seen it in your lives, and I've heard the stories. And so maybe this morning you're just trying to figure this all out. I want to invite you to join us, to join, to say yes to God's invitation, to restoration, to hope, to healing, to start living it out. That's what it means to follow Jesus. So maybe today's your day. Don't wait. Say yes. We gather on Sundays because it matters, because it's important. We gather all throughout the week in all kinds of different places in homes. If you're not a part of something like that, we invite you to do it, to be a part of that at Awaken. We offer it because it's important. Maybe you have it elsewhere, that's great. If you don't, sign up for a life group and start living this out, start walking it together in community. Grace. www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.